0: Welcome to the future of application security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso, and without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Application Security podcast. Today, we have Anthony Ungerman with us. Anthony is the VP of Product Security at Avalara. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Anthony, I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you do, maybe a little bit about your background so our audience can get to know you a little bit better.
1: Okay, sure. I could tell you about myself, my favorite topic. (laughs) So anyway, I'm a lifelong computer junkie, got involved in it when I was 12 years old. And I can't think of a day where I haven't thought of some computer or software problem. It's always floating around my head. I graduated the University of Texas with a computer science degree, and I went right into a startup, SoftSync in New York. SoftSync, after I was there for a couple of years, we got acquired. I then, after the acquisition was finished, I moved on to Lotus development. They did spreadsheets. They actually got acquired by IBM. Then later, I moved to Citrix. Citrix, while I was there, I was employee 191. While I was there, they experienced 50 times revenue growth. So they were, as a juggernaut, massively successful. From Citrix, I went to a company that was the only non-financial winner I picked. And now I'm at Avalara, who's growing like crazy. And one thing that I take away from this, Marshall, is that you always want to go with the market leader. You always want to be with a successful company. They have the resources you need to get your job done. Everyone's in a good mood. There's plenty of good people that are attracted, and they build the best products, and it tends to snowball. So that's sort of my ask. You know, when I was at the first few companies, the SoftSync and Lotus and Citrix in the early years, I was a software developer and i moved into management then i became a director and the chief architect at the time he's now the uh, cso at avalera but at the time he was chief architect over at, at citrix he was not getting the traction he needed to fix the security issues that he wanted to fix so he went to the cfo got a um, convinced them to give him uh, funding for a team of of 9 people and He needed someone to manage those nine people. So he asked me to to take that on. And that was my entry into, into security. This person I'm talking about, he has three or four patents in cryptography, and he taught me cryptography. And I did a lot of learnings on my own. In fact, one of my favorite stories about security, and I tell this at my daughter's wedding, is when I was just starting out and learning the ropes, I had built up a security lab at home. And my kids were on laptops at the time, right? Are, by then, uh, children had laptops. And I did some DNS poisoning to redirect their traffic through my Cali box. And then I did something called SSL strip. You can't do it anymore because there's protections in HTTP. By the time you could strip off the SSL, I would log everything, and then I would forward it along. And then I had logs of everything they were doing. I got bored of it. I turned the machine off and the internet broke and I said, reboot. And they were up and running again. And they didn't hear about it until my daughter's wedding. And they were really unhappy with me when, the, when they heard that. But they're getting married. So how unhappy could they be? Uh-huh. So that's a little bit about my history. That's my long-winded story of my of, of <laughs> history and how I got into security.
0: Well, other than the takeaway of uh, using uh, the kids as experimental, you know, for uh, hacks you want to try... The other takeaway that I have from this story is pick the right winners, right? Like that that story of, you know, the chief architect going to the CFO and and even getting those seven headcount to fix security issues wouldn't have been possible if the company was not doing that well. So if you want to grow as a security professional or in your career, build, you know, great teams and hire awesome people, do fun things, you want to be at a company that's growing and growing fast and has the resources available to do those things. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And by the way,
1: I, I chose my kids because I was looking for the one group that wouldn't sue me. and they did
0: not. They did not. <laughs> uh, good choice. Good choice. Uh, although kids these days you can't tell. You know, now, yeah. yeah you now, never know. I kinda different. I might have gotten lucky. <laughs> Fantastic. Anthony. So I always get curious when there is, you know, product security as a title or as a name of the team, name of the function. As compared to the traditional, you know, application security or you know infrastructure security, network security. Tell me a little bit about what do you mean by product security and why is it relevant?
1: Yeah. So I have within my organization multiple teams. And one of the teams is an AppSec team and they do all the standard DAST and SAS and SCA and all those things. But product security is about much more today, right? Product security is to make sure the products are secure and make sure that, and the work with the engineering. I always tell engineers that together we own the security and we're there to help them. So we're concerned with customers. I speak with customers almost every day. We're concerned with the cloud around our application. And we are also integrated in with the other security teams within Avalara, right? So Avalara has a, a rather large security presence where we have our our own uh, SOC and we have compliance and we have risk management and all these things. But on my team, besides AppSec, we're also, uh, we have a red team and the red team has done some really exciting things. And we have a uh, DevSecOps team, which is responsible for being the glue between our reliability engineers and our security team. And then we have a platform security team and they build security modules and security features that could be put into our products. So
0: it's much wider than than a standard app set. And that's how I think about it. That's fantastic. So you got you got breakers, you got builders, you got, you know, quote unquote consultants in your team. Right. So different types of skills to not just find problems, but also to help fix them and prevent them in the first place. True. That's pretty cool. So how does product security align with engineering from an organizational perspective? Do you all roll up under the same C-level executive, or how does that? I have two bosses.
1: One boss is the CTO who runs the engineering and IT organization. And my other boss is the CSO, the chief security officer, who runs the security organization. And, um, you know, sometimes it's hard having two bosses because I get twice as many assignments but I am in all the engineering uh, executive meetings. I have relationships with all the VPs and senior VPs, and we partner on fixing security issues. It's much more... I've, I've had this type of organization before at a couple of other places, and I find it a uh, important way to organize. Because if I was off... Let's say I was not in the engineering organization It would just be like us throwing rocks at engineering, but now we're working together. And if someone can't meet an SLA, you know, we're working together on a strategy. Well, how can we get close? How can we get that next week when it was due this week? And it puts accountability on the, on engineering too, because my boss is now accountable for security. Right. I I think it's really the way to, to go.
0: Yeah. So, Anthony, when you're when you're building all of these functions and different teams within security, and then you have many different aspects within engineering, so you have your reliability engineering, you might have some SRE folks and release engineering people, and of course the software development teams and maybe some cloud teams or what have you. How does that interface look like? You have many different teams on security side, many, many more teams on the engineering side, and they they all have to talk to each other at different levels. Different levels of seniority, different levels of you know, strategy or tactical execution, day-to-day, fixing bugs, compliance, whatever, what have you. What does that interaction look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's not enough people on my team to sit in every Scrum team, right? We have 180 Scrum teams. I have 24 people on product security. So uh, we do a lot through... I work with the top line engineering executives, and my team works with... Um, we have over 200 security champions. And my team will work closely with the security champions, and the security champions will help to implement a lot of these security programs. And if it gets, if something gets above the head of the champion, they will always come to to my team. We right. also have a very active set of Slack channels where people ask questions. Yeah, and um, we seem to get things done. To me, the most important thing is to work within the process and at the pace of engineering.
0: Right. So if security champions are the point of collaboration, point of communication between those two different functions, then one of the things that's very obvious is as security teams identify issues that need mitigation, risks that need mitigation, that you would funnel it through the security champion, what have you. But then since you also have this platform security team that is building security systems, frameworks, libraries, components, what have you, for adoption by the engineering teams, or when your AppSec team is deploying any security tools, let's just say a secret scanner and you need adoption, the dev teams, does that also go through the security champions Are you using that mechanism or that's it, separately?
1: It, it will, it will. It's funny you mentioned secret scanner because that's what I had on my mind when you started your question. We developed a sort of machine learning based a secret scanner that will go and look at the entropy of all the bits in our source file. And it's done pretty well at finding the issue. But the way we'll work that out is we will create the tool, we'll make it available, and the security champions have the responsibility to bring that back to their teams. We've over the years, we've made the security champion a more an official role. So it's not just something you volunteer for and not show up, right? So you have responsibilities to make sure your team are hitting their SLAs. You have responsibilities to you know, remind the teams to do their training and to be hooked into our stack of scanners and SAS and DAST and, and everything else. That's so, awesome. so it is an official role. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. And, you know, sort of related to that is typically, you know, as a security professional, our jobs is to make sure not just that we find the risk, but also help the rest of the organization mitigate the ones that truly matter to the business, right? Now, one of the topics that we were talking about before we started recording is where is that challenge? Where does that friction come in from? Is it the developers who need more security training because they need to learn how to write secure code, or is it the executives who just need to sponsor more for security, or you know, and have more engineers for security, or is it somewhere else? Like, what's your right.
1: Yeah, and that's what the uh, thinking about the earlier conversation. It's you know, what are the challenges? that you face as a product security leader. And, you know, back in the day, back when I started this, and you can see my gray hair, I've been around for a while. It was, we were sort of in the shadows. We were in the back rooms, but now with the evolution of security, all the regulations, GDPR has, has reshaped the world, right? It's not just about European security. It's, you know, we're only building one application. So what works in Europe is also working in the U.S., all the edicts coming out of the, out of the White House, security has become a boardroom imperative. We've now, the last few companies I've worked at, I've seen board members who have a security background, and they put pressure on the CEO and the, the CEO and the entire C level. They are interested. They are interested in delivering secure solutions. The engineers at the uh, the hands on keyboards, The engineers, they also want to build high quality because everyone wants their work to be solid. Where we see the pressure is in the middle. So in the middle managers who are given my list of security concerns, plus a million other things coming from a million directions, they're looking for ways to cut and for ways to take things off their plate so they could deliver. And I support them. I, I believe that we need to be secure. We need to address the security issues. But we also have to deliver value to the market. So it was that thing we talked about in the beginning. If you're not delivering value to the market, you're not going to be in a high growth, highly successful company. So that, I mean, that's the way I look at it. And we're also seeing it from our customers. So customers have security compliance teams today, and they push on their procurement teams to only buy software, which meets their security, their security framework. Yeah, you know, it's grown in the, in the past few years, I'll review customer contracts and the security addendums are nine, 10 or 11 pages long. Right. Right. You know, they're very, they want to know very specific things. Like what's the key length of the bulk encryption you use? How is your WAF configured? So things have changed. Yeah. It's now, a, you know, out there, out front.
0: No, I want to appeal a couple more layers in, onto this topic yeah. that it's it's the middle management, right? So that's where we have some challenges. Now, if you assume that that's where challenges are, and that may not be the case everywhere, right? In a lot of cases, uh, software developers do need more security training, and that's fine. It's you know, it's, it's stable stakes. But then if number of organizations, and I, by the way, I do 100%, I agree. That's exactly what I, I saw in my personal experience as well. Many people I talked to, exact same data point that, the middle management is they are trying to manage too many things and they need more help in terms of prioritizing security. So if that's the point of friction, does that change the approach that we as security professionals would have in terms of how do we convince them that this is actually important? How do we justify, how do we provide business justification of more investments in security? I have a few answers to your question. So first we
1: convince them by tying it back to the business. That's why I, I spoke about customers a moment ago. You know, I get asked some very pointed questions and we get questionnaires. And if we don't meet these security objectives, the uh, customer security teams will not let them buy our product. So you, you always, I always tie it back to the business. You know, why is it important? Of course, I talk about risk and protecting our reputation and all those things, but it, the business really, really hits them between the eyes. One thing that a lot of non-security people don't appreciate is defense and depth. Right. So they'll say, well, why do I have to scrub my input or sanitize my input? I have a WASP, right? And that's where you have to explain to them, you know, just defense and depth and layers of, of, of protection. But like I said, it's always going back to how is this going to help us in business? You know, we want to get a SOC 2 or an ISO 27000. We can't do that until we have these security controls in place because the auditors won't allow it. At the same time, our job as as security professionals is to make it easier for teams to deliver security. Anytime I used to have uh, my original DevSecOps manager, she's moved on, but she used to say, our job is to make security transparent. And I use that. I push a lot of non-security initiatives like CICD. Right. Uh, CICD isn't in itself a security initiative, but if you set it up properly, it's automatically patching, always picking up those new patches every day, testing it, making sure that works right. It reminds me of uh, something one of the, the principal security engineers said to me at the beginning of my career, said, Anthony, good architecture is good security. So I, I am pushing our teams to go on the blessed frameworks that architecture is coming out with, and they get a lot of security for free. i give you another example. You know, anyone who's using like a, an orchestrated containerized system like Kubernetes or, or, or something like that, they have computer services that live in the cloud for hours opposed to weeks or years. And there's really very little time for an attacker to get their foot into that container before it's retired. And even if we think there's a 1% chance or a 0.5% chance that a container has been contaminated, we could uh, quarantine it and it'll just repopulate. So we don't, you know, back in the old days, it would take an act of God to bring down a service if you thought there was risk. So evangelizing these robust systems is good for security. Right. So, So that's the second part. So, you know, making, giving the guardrails and the tools people need to be able to deliver security without having to uh, sign up their first point.
0: Right, right. And that definitely has an impact to the types of people we hire in the team, in the product security team, right? So because for you to have an influence to you know the blessed architecture, then you would have to have somebody who can be a part of that team or be at the same technical level to influence that blessed architecture to shift in the right direction. Yeah, and yeah, there's all there's there's all
1: levels, right? And to be the person who sits, you know, the woman we have who's our security architect, right? She understands technology backwards and forwards and she sits on the architectural board and she has to understand not only security but the technology and programming and different platforms.
0: Yeah. Now, you recently also wrote an article in devops.com about prioritizing product security with devsecops. Do you want to give like a quick synthesis of what your key takeaways were from that from that article? Yeah, and
1: yeah, that one I'm trying to think it was, a, it was a few months ago that I wrote it. So that article, what I dug into is yeah, I have a great team. So another one of my philosophies is only hire people smarter than you. So I surround myself by very capable people, and what they built is a completely automated appsec program. So. You push code into we use GitLab. Push code into GitLab. It automatically goes to checkmark. Or it automatically goes to I won't say the name. Automatically goes to our SAST scanner. It automatically goes to our uh, SCA to make sure that we're following open source licensing and patching and all that stuff. Once a build comes out, it will automatically build a deployment, and we'll have our DAST. And all this comes together. Gets fed into our—they call it a chasm. That's a—that's a new term. Cyber asset attack surface management, which takes all these desperate sources, gives us the visibility into what they are, writes out tickets, figures out who on the out of all of the engine out of the two thousand people the ticket should go to, and then if they check in a code again, it checks to see if they fix the issue, and if it does, it closes the ticket. So that gives us the visibility and gives the team the guardrails they need. In fact, the next thing we're looking at, we haven't done it yet. The next thing we're looking at is technology, which will automatically do a pull request. If you have an old version, if you need to patch your uh, open source library. right? So that's what that, that article, from what I remember, was about building that automated system and the team you need the team you need to actually deliver it support it and evangelize so you mentioned um, training and that's one thing that i think that's the most value you could give to an engineering team from security. get the best practices in people in people's heads so we're right now you know as we're taping this interview as we're recording it my team's running its semi annual ctf so we have a you know, we have a capture the flag and we give out prizes and it's you know it's a lot of fun I won one year. I'm not playing this time just because I'm just so busy. We have six and a half hours of security boot camp that people have to take when they start. and Then every year they could place out of it. We'll give them a test, and if they score, you know, 80 percent or above on the test, they'll they could um, place out of different components. We have vulnerability of the month meetings, and then we have uh, you know multiple uh, trainings around our security champions. So. You know, that's another way where you make sure it's written right in the first place is to do that training. And it's one place I'm pretty easygoing, but one place I'm heavy handed is on the training. So we have it set up where if you don't get your training done, you get cut out of source control. And I tell them, well, I can't, you know, you can't be checking in code if you don't understand the security. And that usually gets me to 100%, not soon after the deadline. So, But most of the time, I'm very you know, flexible. We're working as a team. We're not going to always hit every single thing I want. But as we work together, we do uh, get the the highest risk.
0: What was the feedback you received when you rolled out that requirement mm-hmm. first?
1: Uh, the uh, Of the trap, you're cut out of uh, yeah. get, uh, GitLab. Mm-hmm. So from the executive level, they loved it. It wasn't very popular from the people who were actually getting cut out. You know, people will say, well, I have this deadline, we're going, we're going to production, blah, blah. I need to get back in. I said, well, just, you know, just finish your training and I could get you uh, I'll turn it on immediately. But you know, you can't do that all the time because that's you know, you have to pick your one or two areas where you really need to to lay down the law.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I completely agree. You know, those things are useful. I mean, obviously it depends on the culture, but I feel like, you know, having talked to many, many security people, there's a huge reluctance in security people to go anywhere close to the dev process. And justifiably so, a lot of security people don't actually understand how this holding works, right? And they're they're kind of afraid because it's production impacting, it's business revenue impacting in a way. But like, if you're good at what you do, I mean, that's what release engineering, SREs, that's what... All of those teams does, like if you're not following the requirements, you're not going to get access to those things, right? So as a security profession, like we shouldn't be so away from those kinds of enforcements. Like if you want security to be a part of their workflows, then you got to act like those other functions that are a part of their workflows.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm an old school, you know, I I started my career as a developer, so I have empathy. Yeah. You know, when I uh, tell someone they can't use a certain library because the license doesn't match our policies, I understand that's a big deal to mm-hmm. pulling out a, a library. There's a lot of code that has to be rewritten. So, uh, you know, I get all that. But at the same time, you know, I, I act as a partner and I look for a partnership in in return. Yeah. So if we agree something's going to be done, let's, let's do it. If something is just too big, let's talk about that up front we could work on the compensating controls.
0: Right, right. Makes total sense. So now you know with a lot of these changes, you know we talked about product security and how that's different from the old school version right. of uh, different things. Do you have any thoughts on where the space is evolving? What's next and interesting in this world of product security? Yeah, I mean it's you know we touched on GDPR before and the different regulations we're
1: seeing them in the the US, and this is going to push things uh, forward. So you know as the it's always been an arms race between the white hats and the black hats. I think I mentioned it during our, our pre-interview that I was interested in stack smashing. But if you look at the guardrails that were put in front of a stack smashing, you know, first they would put canaries on the stack. And that way, you know, it would detect a, a stack overwrite. Then when the attackers figured out how to defeat that, you had the no execute uh, mode that would get turned on. Then ASLR. And then they wiped the entire class of memory attacks with memory-safe languages. So you can see it's, I walk you through this, because I want you to just, you know, think about the evolution of security controls, right? We see it also with cross-site scripting, right? To a lesser extent, we have content security policy and other HTTP headers. So I think as we, we go in the future, uh, you know, as we progress down the road for, uh, year over year, these guardrails are going to become more prevalent, right? I have tools today which will scan Terraform scripts and disable public S3 buckets, or at least flag. them. You know, there's one or two reasons to, to have a an S3 S3 bucket. A different anomaly detection techniques are getting uh, better and better, right? We have tools today which will will look at traffic coming out of a out of a container and realize, hey, I've never seen. This port or this address used before, and I'll raise a flag. Now, of course, make sure the attacker is not in your system when you do the training, right? Or they'll defeat it, right? Generative learning is at the top of its hype cycle now, All right. Everyone's talking about it, but that's going to, um, well, I put it in my notes, but I don't know if it's going to put an end to the script kitties or create a whole new class of script kitties. But the point I'm making is a lot of things that the developers are doing manually today are just going to become part of the system and it's going to be impossible to create certain classes of security of security issues you're not going to be able to have unencrypted data on the wire because the systems will automatically have TLS built in you know all these controls and that's where I, I see it going and then on the other on the other side this hits home with you on the asset attack surface management, those are tools that, well, we have one today, and those are tools that are going to take the security data from all these AppSec tools and pull them together into a single pane of glass. So just like seems to do today for operational security, they're going to be tools that create a holistic view for any outstanding app security, and it's going to be easier to identify
0: yeah and I obviously I totally believe in that, which is why we started Tromso because uh, you know personally I felt that exact same pain point because we had many, many tools across the different right. layers of the stack, you know application, cloud container, what have you. and then it's uh, what do you do with all of this data? How do you make risk based decisions? Uh, right. That's a fundamental problem. So it's necessity, I think
1: it's yeah, you're in a key space. I think you're in a space that's gonna grow. and the you know my advice on that is make it automatic. Right. Oh, buy the service and maybe you have to tinker with a few things and it and it works. You know, there's half a dozen SaaS tools that are popular today. There's half a dozen DAS tools, half a dozen network scanners.
0: You support all those, and I think you're on to something very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Anthony, this was such a phenomenal conversation. Thank right. you so much for your time for being on this podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure.
1: I know I rambled on a little bit, but this is something I feel passionate about. And thanks for having
0: me. I I had a great time. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.